Praise God. I tell you, I, I just am so, so full of just joy and expectation tonight because I know what is in this young man. And I am so very proud of you. And I love you so very much. And I know I don't just speak for myself, but I speak for the people of this church. Your church family, we love you. And we, we, you know, I'm just amazed, really, at what God is doing in this young man's life. The anointing of God that is being increased upon him. The wisdom of God. It, it's just wonderful to watch. It does not get better this side of heaven than to see your seed producing fruit in abundance. You have sown into the young people of this church. And I tell you what, they're going forth and they are bearing fruit. And I know that that brings you tremendous joy. So with great pleasure, it is my honor. Sterling, would you come and minister to us? Hallelujah. Praise God. Wow. Thank you so much. Can you guys hear me? Can you hear me all right? Wow. Well, you can be seated. Thank you so much. Wow. Um, I couldn't have imagined a better uh, introduction. Um, Praise the Lord. I want to start off by giving a side note uh, real quick. This has nothing to do with my message. But it's in 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Sorry. It says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. We just got out of the Thanksgiving holiday season. And wow, we have a lot of people here. Praise God. We just got out of Thanksgiving. And uh, I remember I was up in uh, Santa Rosa with the grandparents, and we were watching TV. I don't watch TV much anymore. I don't know about you. Uh, but we were seeing different advertisements for all this Black Friday stuff. I mean, you guys are familiar with all that. Like, come on down and get a new car on Black Friday. Come get a new TV. Come get a new whatever. And it's almost like the spirit of Thanksgiving was lost. We've lost the meaning of Thanksgiving. And one thing that I pray that I never lose is that attitude of Thanksgiving. Because based on this scripture, it says that when we have an understanding of grace, out of that knowledge of grace comes thanksgiving. Because each one of us, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you have that understanding of grace. And it just causes thanksgiving to come out. And you realize how great and awesome God is. And how imperfect. And you can't get salvation by yourself. It's by grace. And when you come to that understanding of that, and you say, God, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't understand why you brought me here or how I'm still here, but I know that it's by your grace. It's always been your grace. It will continue to be your grace, and it will be your grace to the end of time, to your glory forevermore. Amen. Amen. So I, I pray that that blesses you. So um, thank you all for having me. I'm very, very excited. Um, first, I want to I say thank you to Pastors Mark and Brenda, even though they're not here, for um, giving me this wonderful honor um, and this privilege to bring God's word to you. Um, well, let's see, 702, I, I've been told that I have a full four and a half hours to preach tonight, so um, hope you ate dinner. Uh, we're going to get into the Word tonight. Um, a little bit about myself, um, I am a man that loves Jesus with all my heart. Um, I love Jesus so much, I'll do anything for Jesus. I'll go to the ends of the world, I don't care. I'll, I'll get spit on, I'll get beat up, I don't care. I love Jesus with all my heart. And I really think that that's the attitude that we should have is, I don't care what people think. I don't care if I get embarrassed because it, we're serving an audience of one, which is Jesus. Is that right? So um, I believe that we are in the midst of a great revival outpouring very soon, if not right now. And I think that we are a part of it. I believe that every single person in the church has an instrumental role to play, whether you're a, a big preacher somewhere or you're just cleaning a toilet somewhere. I believe that's a very big part. You have no idea the kind of influence that you might have in someone's life. You may be able to reach someone that I will never meet in my entire life, but just your seed that you plant, you may bring them to the kingdom, and there's a reward for that. So everyone has a part to play. Everyone is precious. Every heart is precious. 
And I, I, I literally, I was just thinking about this on the way over. I, I keep getting this vision of the, uh, of the Bay Area. That's something that's really on my heart uh, because this is my home. This is the East Bay, born and raised. And uh, I, I just have this dream of seeing the church. It's almost like people are fighting to get a seat in the church because there's not enough room to get in because they, they realize that it's the glory of God in that place. And I really believe that God is taking us to that place, not just in this church, but in the churches all around the Bay Area. And that's what I'm praying for. There are nights where I, I think about getting people saved and I can't sleep because there are people that are not, they don't know Jesus. They don't know the way, the truth, and the life. They don't know about the one who, who died on the cross for their sins. And they need to know. They need to know. It's very important. And so I believe that God is doing some amazing things. Amen? All right. Would you stand with me as we read uh, the scripture? It's in Colossians chapter 3. just want to honor God's words tonight. Um, there's a lot that I have to share. I'm going to try to fly through it. <laughs> but uh, it's in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Everybody say above. above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died and for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight, that you would uh, bring us to another uh, degree of glory. I pray that you would help us to set our mind on things above. Help us to think your thoughts, God. Help us to understand what you are trying to communicate tonight. And that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word as well. That we would go out into the marketplaces and we would be a light in that location. God, that we would change the environment we walk in. That when we set our feet on the ground, that we would take possession of that land for your kingdom, God. I pray that lives would never be the same in the workplace, God, anywhere, God. At a sporting event, it doesn't matter because you're always there. You're always doing things, God. So please speak to us tonight, God, and send us forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. My title for you tonight is Look to the Heavens. Everybody say, Look to the Heavens. And everybody's going to look up at the ceiling like, oh, look to the heavens. We're indoors. So if you've studied a little bit of world history, you know that for centuries, man has always desired to fly. Have they not? Um, I'm going to give you a few uh, historical uh, accounts in, uh, in history, events and whatnot. Around 400 B.C., I'm not sure if this is myth or if it's fact, but apparently the Chinese were using kites for religious purposes. They were throwing them around and inventing and whatnot. I'm sure that there was probably some moron who took the kite and tried to jump off of a roof and try to fly and came tumbling down, smash on the ground. Perhaps you yourself, when you were a young child, have done such a thing where you take a cape and you leap forward thinking, I can fly, and then you come right down to the ground in utter failure. Skip forward in history to 1485 uh, AD, a man by the name of Leonardo da Vinci. Anybody heard of that guy? He was an Italian artist, very brilliant mind, one of the greatest of all time, apparently. And he drew and sketched something called the ornithopter. I think I said that right, the ornithopter. It was a type of flying device. It was never constructed in his time, uh, but apparently helicopters today have been based on sketches that he made. In 1783, uh, two Frenchmen, two brothers, named Joseph and Jacques Montgolfier, I hope I said that right. Somebody's going to correct me afterward, invented the first hot air balloon, the first hot air balloon. On, uh, and officially in, uh, in America, there's other events, but for the sake of time, we'll just go to this. On December 17, 1903, at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, you probably are familiar with this, Orville and Wilbur Wright tested what is called the Wright Flyer, which became the first powered, heavier-than-air machine to achieve controlled, sustained flight with a pilot aboard. And I got that from uh, airandspace.si.edu. So it's a legitimate fact that happened in history. So we see that there's always been a desire to fly or to get higher up than, we're, than just being on the ground in earth, right? Um, it's, it's almost like it's, it's an innate desire like, to, to go higher. Um, it's, I, I'm getting ahead of myself right now, but if you notice, like if you've ever studied war, 
it's very significant that you get the high ground in that battle. Wars have been changed because you had the high ground. If you could just imagine for a minute, um, whether you have a gun or you have a bow and arrow, if you're standing up on top of the mountain and you're shooting down, you have gravity to, on your side, right? And if you're down here trying to go up the mountain, you're, you don't have much cover to defend you as you're going up that mountain. So you could see that really a high place is very significant, especially in warfare. And in the same place, we're going somewhere now, in the same way, you have to be in the high place in spiritual warfare. You have to be ready. You have to be ready to fight at all times. You want to be on your feet, ready to go. You don't want to be caught sleeping in the night, right? That's right. Anyway, so there's a, there's a the desire to fly is symbolic of the desire for bigger, better, and greater things. It is not a vision of the eye, but a vision of the heart. Uh, Paul said in Second Corinthians five verse seven that we do not walk by faith. But, excuse me. We do not walk by sight, but we walk by faith. Do we not? The significance of being... Oh, we already talked about that. Um, so let's talk about what are the heavens. Heavens. A lot of us, when we think of heaven, we think of the final resting place where we will be with God forever because we've accepted Jesus into our heart. But textually in the Bible, whenever we see the word heavens, it doesn't always refer to that. Um, so we're going to give you a little bit of Greek and Hebrew. Who's excited to get into the Bible? So the, the Greek word for heavens is oranas. I hope that I'm, I'm pronouncing that right. Oranas. It means air, heaven, or sky. And in all the, in the, the New Testament passages I'm going to mention, it's using that word. In the Hebrew, it is shamaim, which means the air, the heavens, the firmament, the stars, these celestial bodies, or you could say the planets, what you see in the sky. Remember, that in ancient times they did not have a cool telescope to examine galaxies and whatnot in the stars. They could only see what they see from here. There's also something called, uh, I remember in astronomy class years ago, uh, something called light pollution, where you go outside and you see so many lights. You ever, you ever been outside and it's hard to see the sky because there's so many lights, and then you go out in the country on a vacation or something, out camping, and then you, you're like, wow, there's a lot of stars out there. So remember, they don't have electricity at that time. They might have some fire and some stands or whatever, but for the most part, they can see the stars clearly because they didn't have that blocking them. So in Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 9, uh, there's a connection between... God uses a, a, an analogy for as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how his thoughts are. Remember, our main passage is Colossians chapter 3, where it says, set your mind on things above and not things down here. You see that? It's setting your mind up here in the things above, in the heavens, not down here on earth. Okay? It says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So in a Jewish mindset, you can almost imagine that when they're looking up in the heavens, it's... You can't reach that. It, it's, it's a symbol of impossibility because we're here on earth. We can't get up there. And God is saying, look, you see how high that is? You can't reach that. That's how high my thoughts are above your thoughts. And what God is trying to do, he, what he wants his church to do, he wants us to get our thoughts, our thinking, not down here on earth because that doesn't require faith. He wants it. Remember, the Bible says in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what he's saying is, don't get your thinking on earth. Get your thinking up here in the heavens where I'm at, and you'll start to see where I see. And you'll see, yeah, there's victory up here. I see vision. There, there are good things up here. Amen? Come on, that's good. Come on. <laughs> All right, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's skip over there real quick. Paul is writing in the third person about himself, trying not to boast but he describes a vision that he has. Uh, it says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ, he's referring to himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a man, caught, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. So again, if we have this mindset of, well, there's only one thing called heaven, that's where God is. Well, what does it mean, third heaven? In the Jewish mindset, there are three levels of heaven. There are three heavens. The first heaven is the atmosphere. You guys know what the atmosphere is, right? It's where the clouds are. It's where the birds fly. It's where we see the airplanes flying across the sky. Well, of course, they didn't have airplanes at that time. But that's the first heaven. The second heaven 
get this, the second heaven is the constellations, the stars, the galaxies, the sky. And then the third heaven is the place where God dwells. Far above those heavens. Far above the atmosphere. Far above the sun and the moon and the stars. Far above that. That is where God is seated. And that's where Paul was saying, I, this, talking about this vision, I don't know if I was in the third, in, in the body or not, but I was caught up to that heaven, yeah. the third heaven, yeah. the highest heaven there is. I was there. I saw, and that's, in the Jewish mindset, that's where the paradise is. Amen? So, there are a couple stories in Scripture I want you to turn to. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. That's all kind of the introduction. Amen? Set your mind on things above. Genesis chapter 15. Praise the Lord. So there's a a clear connection between your thinking and the heavens. There's a a clear connection there. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, Chapter 15, Genesis 15, verse 1 through 7 says, After these things, the, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will, shall be very great. Now, I want to stop right there real quick um, to give you some context. Uh, in chapter 14, it details what's called the War of the Nine Kings. And uh, it describes how his nephew Lot was taken captive. And he actually had to get 318 men to go and rescue Lot from this crazy war that was going on. And it's appropriate that God would say to him, I am your shield. Because what's a shield do? It's, it's protection even when there's chaos going around. And at this point, Abram is in the land of Hebron, near the oaks of Mamre. That's in uh, Genesis 13, verse 18. Um, Of course, that's where we get the word Hebrew from, from the land of Hebron, right? And so he says to him, your reward shall be very great. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? At this point, it's, the text is not explicitly clear on how old Abraham was, or at that time it was Abram. He was not called Abraham yet. It says in, in uh, chapter 16, verse 15, that he was 86 years old. And then you go back to, where is it, chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 11, he's 75 years old. And so he's somewhere between the ages of 75 and 86. So what's the point? He's old. <laughs> That's all we need to know, right? <laughs> He's old. And so at this point, <laughs> Abram, was, Abram was originally from the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, was he not? And then he went with his father Terah up to Haran, geographically. And at that point, that's when Ter, Ter, his father died. And then God called him at Haran. And so at this point, he's already traveled. God has already reassured. There are two things that Abram wanted. He wanted land and he wanted descendants. Land and descendants, those were the two greatest rewards that Abram could ever possibly imagine. And he said, God said to him, go from your land. We're all familiar with this, right? Go from your land, and I will give you the land. I will give you a new land that is not from your fathers. Go there, and I will give you descendants. And remember, he, he's old, right? <laughs> His wife is pretty up there, too. She's, probably, she's barren by this point. And he says, God, you've given me nothing. You said this. You made all these promises. You gave me absolutely nothing. How are you going to... I'm going to have to give it to Eliezer. Who's Eliezer? He's some servant from Damascus. Let me give you an example. That's like my dad, if he... Hopefully he'll give me inheritance one day. Um, <laughs> but if he's on his deathbed... <laughs> And I go to him, and I'm just telling him I love him, and, and I'm expecting, yeah, you know, son, don't worry, you're in the will, you're taken care of. And then some, some beggar off the street comes in, and he says, forget about you, son, I'm going to give it to him. That's the significance. Eliezer is this slave. That's the only person that Abram could have given it to. He doubted God. He doubted the word of the Lord. But God responds very clearly in... Uh, well, let's read verse 3. It says, And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Referring to Eliezer. And then in verse 5 it says, He took him outside and said, Look 
toward the heavens. Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then, he be- then this is a famous scripture that uh, Paul quotes in Romans. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's a whole different topic. But Verse 5, look toward the heavens. Look toward the heavens. Interesting. Abram is probably inside his tent most of the time, trying to keep warm. And God tells him to get out of his tent, out of his comfort zone, out of the place where it's warm, where there's a fire. He tells him, go outside. Abram, you look at the stars. Look to the heavens. And he sees, he says, you see those stars? Can you count them? No, too many. He says, that's you're going to be your descendants. But God, you, you haven't given me anything. You, those are going to be your descendants. He will come from your body. Not just some slave. Not just some servant. Why, God? How can you promise that? Because I spoke a word. Because I spoke a word. When God speaks a word to you and he puts it in your heart, it doesn't matter if everything around you is contrary to that word. Because the word of God always dominates what's going on in your life. The supernatural will always dominate the natural realm. One day the kingdom of heaven is going to supersede the kingdom of darkness here on earth. And Jesus will sit on his throne and reign forevermore. Amen? That's good news. Now, do we see that in the physical right now? Not necessarily. We still got a lot of problems on earth, right? But, but we believe that by faith. Why? Because God spoke a word. Did he not? He spoke a word. The very, the very worlds were, flame, were framed by a word. The things which are unseen, the things that are seen, that we do see, were framed by things that are not seen. It's all about faith. When God speaks a word and he puts something in your heart, you've got to hang on to that word as tight as you can. And people are going to tell you, well, you, you can't do that. You, that's not possible. But you don't understand. I got a word from God. I really feel like God, no, you don't have enough money to do that. No, you don't have enough education to do that. I don't think, but you don't understand. I have a word from God. I have a word from God. And when you get that word, then it gives you the ability to step out in faith and do what he called you to do. It doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 80 years old. Remember that Abram, he didn't have kids. He didn't have Isaac until he was what? A hundred years old. Okay. Okay. Between 75 and 86, that was pretty old. 100 years is really old, (laughs) really old, right? But God still granted him the promise. But I think it's really important to know this. Remember that Abram, even after God spoke this word, his wife came up to him. Oh, man. His wife came up to him and said, just have my servant girl and and go into her. Go into the room with her and then you have a child through her. And he can bear, he can be the son of promise. Was that what God promised? No, he said that he was going to give, God said he was going to give the promise to Abram through Sarai, his wife, even though she was, what, 90 years old? Man. But he still doubted the word of the Lord. And then out came Ishmael, right? But even in spite of his mistakes, God still did it. He birthed Isaac, the promise. And from that came Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Galatians says that the blessing of Abraham can come on the Gentiles. That's you and me, unless you're literally Jewish in the room. (laughs) The blessing of Abraham, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are Abraham's seed. And because of the, the faith of Abraham, we are sons of that, sons and daughters, I should say. Praise God. Let's go to the next passage. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 14. Verse 13. You guys doing all right? Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. That's what he wants us to do. It's a familiar passage of scripture. Scripture. 
It's a story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The 5,000 miraculously. Uh, it's Aside from the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only story that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So it's probably significant that we read this. Let's start reading in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. That's significant. Remember that, secluded. Some translations will say a desolate place. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. It seems like wherever Jesus goes, there's always a large crowd of people following him. Can you imagine if, uh, if the church, if we operate in the same power and authority as Jesus, how many people would be following us around, yeah. begging us for healing, for restoration? I'm believing for it. How about you? Verse 15, when it was evening, that's, a, that's another significant thing, it was evening time, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> and they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. Okay, I want you to get this picture. It says very clearly in, uh, in, in verse 21, we'll skip down, it says, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. When, now, there are 5,000 men. Let's just say, for example, uh, every man has a wife there. Okay, so that's 10,000 people, not 5,000. Let's say they each have two kids, roughly. So we don't just have 5,000 people here. We have 20,000 people on this mountain. A lot of people, and they're following Jesus. It's getting late. There's no Taco Bell down the street to just go and get some food. You know what I'm saying? And here come the disciples to Jesus, and they're like, man, we don't have any food. He's like, what, what do you have? Well, we got five loaves of bread and two fish. So this is kind of like what's going on. Imagine 20,000 people just got out of the Raider game. They're all angry because the Raiders lost again. <laughs> is Chuck in the house? <laughs> Buying season tickets? Old faithful? Love you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He's in faith for the Raiders. <laughs> so they're all, you're all angry. You go down to In-N-Out Burger on, at, uh, at Hagenburger over in Oakland, right? You, somehow you fit 20,000 people inside the restaurant. And you say, we got some hungry people here. <laughs> they're angry. They're tired. It's getting late. Can you, what do you have? <sighs> you know what, guys? I'm sorry. We only have five burgers left and two sides of fries. What? We only got five burgers and two... What you, we got 20,000 people. How are you going to feed... I'm sorry. There's, there's not much we can do here. <laughs> it is an impossible situation. Impossible. But let's start reading at, uh, at verse 18. It says, And he said, Bring them here to me. Referring to the five loaves of fish and the... Five, excuse me. Five loaves of bread and the two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. So he had them sit down. And he, looking up toward heaven, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. In other, uh, in Mark, Luke, and John, and whatnot, you can study it on your own time, but it, it, in each, each account, it says, like, it, they gave, he looked up and he gave thanks, and he blessed the food. But there's something significant. Jesus, you know, Jesus is God. Like, you wouldn't be here unless you believe that. Jesus is God. But when he came down to earth, he operated as a man. It says that he let go. It's, it's what's called, a, here's some more Greek for you, kenosis. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how he stepped down. And he, 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 even though he was equal to God, he didn't, he didn't try to strive to be that. He just said, you know what? I, I'm going to step down from him. I'm going to leave that there. I'm going to become as nothing. I'm going to become a slave, a servant, for the sake of you and for me. Right? And so he operated as a man. Yet in the Bible, he's also defined as the author and the finisher of our faith. And so here, operating as a man, he's showing us how to walk in faith. In that situation with five double-doubles and two orders of fries, <laughs> that was impossible. That's thinking down here. That's being in warfare down here, fighting uphill. That's not, very, that's not logical. That's not plausible. But Jesus does something different. He does what? He looks up to the heavens. 
And when we see that, it's a, it's a picture. Can you see that picture? Can you see that picture of Jesus? He's looking up toward heaven. And, he, and he's not thinking down here. He's setting the example so that he's thinking, he's setting his mind on things above. He, he's not worried about the circumstance. He's not worried about the situation. He's setting his mind above. And then, and then he gives out the food. And then what happens next? Um, it talks about how he, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves. He gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets of food. I remember uh, many years ago, maybe some of you remember Pastor Dan and Karen Purcell. Many, many years ago, they used to be the children's pastors here. And one thing I'll never forget that they, they taught was that these baskets were not just little baskets that you can carry with your hands. These were big baskets that you could stick a whole man inside of. Huge baskets full. Huge baskets full of food. And, uh, but can you imagine if, if that little boy who brought the, the five loaves of bread and the two fish, he just gave it in faith. And then Jesus took it up and he said, he gave thanks, he looked toward heaven. You know what that's saying to us, to you and me? It's saying that he wants us to take what little we have and to give thanks to God and say, God, I don't have much to give. I do not have much to give here. But what I do have, you can have it. Because I believe that you're a multiplier. I believe that you bless those who give with a cheerful heart. And so he gave and then he gave. And then as a matter of fact, all the, all the people, all 20,000 people were satisfied they had to be satisfied. They had leftovers, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was satisfied, went home happy. Praise the Lord. They weren't bitter. They weren't angry. They got a word from the Lord. They had their spirits fed. And at the end of the day, their stomachs got fed. Yeah. That's how it is in church any day, right? You go to church on Sunday morning, you get fed in your spirit. Like, all right, let's go to lunch, get a steak. <laughs> they got blessed in every single way. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. You guys getting something tonight? Look to the heavens. Praise the Lord. I want to read that again to you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, have you been raised up with Christ? If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, absolutely you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. There was one preacher I heard recently. He said that, uh, of course, we know that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And you can imagine we're sitting next to Jesus. And the, the, oh, we're going to get into theology for a minute. The thing I love about Jesus, people, scholars have tried to figure it out for, uh, for years. What does it mean to say that, God was, that Jesus was, was God and man? Some people say, like, well, he's only partly God or he's only partly man. Like, he only appeared to be a, a man. Like, he was, but he was more like a hologram. <laughs> you know, bogus stuff, but it's okay. This, this happened hundreds of years ago. It's already been declared as heresy and whatnot. We believe in Jesus, right? He is fully God and fully man. As fully God, he was the only one that was able to take the wrath of God upon himself as an acceptable sacrifice, right? And as a man... He represents you and me and you and you and you. All of mankind. He represents humanity. The, the word declares that he's like the second Adam. The first Adam made a mistake. He sinned. He fell. But Jesus, he's the second Adam. The sec- Adam means man. He's the second man that comes on the scene. And he's able to represent you and me before the Father. And so when it says that we're seated in heavenly places with Christ, he has pulled us up. He has stepped down to our level. If you can picture that, he stepped down to our level. He died for us, and he's ascended on high, and he picked us up as with a dragnet and pulled us up. Does that make sense to you? There's no way you can't get to the heavens by yourself. I'm telling you what, astronomers are baffled when they look in their telescopes. They can't even fathom how large the universe is. If if I could go up to an astronomer and say, Dr. Johnson, um, I have a way of being able to examine every single place in the universe known to man, and you can study it and you can go there. Do you think he would just sit down and, and just like, oh, that, I think I'll pass on that, you know? Dude, he would, he would be like, 
Jerry, get the, get the ship. We're going, dude. <laughs> but it's not possible. It's just too big. It's too big. And yet, even more than that, it's God, the third heaven. He's bigger than all that. He is high above all of that. God is above that. And he's saying, we're not seated in heavenly places where the clouds are. No, I mean, that's pretty high. That's not good enough. You're not seated in heavenly places where all the stars and the moons are. That's pretty cool and all that. We are seated in heavenly places at the throne room of God. Therefore, if you have been seated in heavenly places, set your mind there. Get there. You may be here on earth in the flesh, but you've got to start thinking like you are God's child. You've got to base your thinking on the word of God. It is unperishable. It, is, it will never die. Heaven and earth, remember, oh, that's good. Heaven and earth will pass away, right? Everything you see, it's all going to vanish one day. But his word is trustworthy. You can, you can take that all the way to the bank and cash it. It is a good word. It is strong. It is good. Nothing can take it away from you. The only person that will let it get away from you is yourself. If you hang on to the word, it will sustain you. It will keep you. Amen? I want to read a few... I want to read a few verses here. Praise the Lord. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2 verse 5 through 6 says, We have been seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Psalm 8 verse 1 says, You have set your glory above the heavens, O God. Psalm 71 verse 19 says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. The high heavens. Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Come on, somebody. Psalm 18 verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. They're safe. Remember that a tower is a high place. There's security. There's safety. You can see everything. There's no worry there. When you get your mind to that place, then you don't have to fear. You don't have to walk in bondage anymore. You have been freed. You've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now walk in it. You are a king and a priest, a son, a daughter of the Most High God. Now start acting like it. Put on the robes of righteousness and walk that out. Praise God. Psalm 97 verse 9 says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Psalm 108 verse 4 says, For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the very clouds. The clouds. And finally, Psalm 113 verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Far above all principality, all power. I am, I am so convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities. All this, all this stuff, that it just seems so intimidating. But when you get your thinking up here, it just really doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't matter anymore. Hallelujah. You know, I got to read this verse. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Yeah, I think you quoted it this morning. 12 verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, are you there? Sorry. <laughs> Therefore, since we have a, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you imagine Jesus? He's up there, naked, marred to the point he doesn't even look like a man anymore. Everything is broken in him. Can you imagine that? And despite that, his gaze was fixed on the Father. And it was, it, it hurts so much to, to say, God, why have you forsaken me? He had to do it in that moment. But because of that, we don't have to be forsaken. We don't have to. It says that he despised the shame. It didn't matter what he was going through in the moment. 
because the joy set before him was so much greater. I have to read one more verse. I'm sorry. (laughs) Acts chapter 7. You'll see this. Thank you, Jesus. I wasn't going to read this, but I, I feel led to. Psalm, or excuse me, Acts chapter 7. Everybody heard of a guy named Stephen? Stephen. Oh, this is good. Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. The book of Acts declares that uh, Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And he was full of grace and power in Acts 6, verse 8, and performed great wonders and signs. That's in uh, verse 8 as well. So this is a pretty legit Christian, right? Doing some pretty cool stuff sold out for Christ, not caring what people think. And here at this, at this place in Acts 7, verse 54, uh, the context is that he's brought before the Sanhedrin, which if you don't know what that is, that's the highest Jewish council of that time in Jerusalem. So he's brought before that council, and people are accusing him of blaspheming the law and, and Moses, their most, everything that's sacred to them. And he's just run this, in, in all of chapter uh, 7, all up to this point, he's, he's almost run back, he's gone back to the beginning of history, of their Jewish history, all the way up to that point. And he says some, he has some pretty harsh words for the Jewish leaders at that point. He says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. In other words, he's saying, You guys are bleep, 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 and you bleep, bleep, bleep. Get your kids out of the... <laughs> You uncircumcised of heart in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Man, that's, that's pretty strong language. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously anointed the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Very significant that he says this. These people, the, the Pharisees, the, the, the rulers and whatnot, they're supposed to be the ones that know what's going on with the word of God. At that time, they didn't have the New Testament written. They had what's called the Tanakh. Can you say Tanakh? Which means there are three portions of the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. There's the, the Torah, right? It's the first five books of the Bible. Then there's the wisdom literature. And then there's the prophets, right? And so... That's all they had in their possession at that point. And he's saying to them, you guys, you're supposed to know all this stuff. You're actually an enemy of God. Very strong there. That's like saying um, the, the great Christian pastors we have in this nation, we go up to them and we say, you guys are antichrist. You say that you're, you're full of Christ. You say you're for God, but you are antichrist. You're an enemy of God. That's what he's saying to them. And, it's, and you can imagine the reaction. It says, now when they heard this, they, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I guess they were pretty angry. Um, verse 55 says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed, oh, there we go. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. What did he do? He looked to the heavens. Did he not? He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. Specifically in there, I think he's talking about probably the, the clouds, the first heaven. Like, I see it opened up, and now I see, I see God. I see him. Where am I? Verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, the, the Jews, cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. Pretty significant. Pretty crazy. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. At this point, Jesus, or excuse me, Stephen was martyred for his Savior. At that point, you can just imagine there are people around him with stones ready to kill him. Everything in Stephen's life is, a, is it's about to come to an end. But instead of looking around him, instead of looking, thinking down here on earth, 
He was so in love with Jesus. He looked up to the heavens and there was Jesus standing. He was pleased with Stephen because of his faith. He looked up and, he, and it didn't matter what was going on with him. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's going to be martyred for their faith. I think it would be honor to die for my Savior. But it would be pretty hardcore. <laughs> right? But maybe you're in a situation where you feel like you have stones around you. People are about to kill you. Your rent is due and you have no money. You're sick and there's no, no hope for you. Your marriage is failing. It's about to come to an end. See, Stephen's death is symbolic of a lot of different types of death that you and I go through every day. Death of a marriage. Death of a living situation. Does that make any sense? But in spite of all that, when all those stones are raised up against you, remember you have the word of the Lord, which is strong, stronger. You have a God who is seated not just in the clouds, not just in the stars, but high above all those. And when you're in that moment, God is saying, look to the heavens. There's vision when you look to the heavens. You receive strength when you look to the heavens. There's hope when you look to the heavens. There's joy when you look to the heavens. You know, I I remember... um, one thing that I, 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 I deal with quite a lot is um, depression. It's kind of funny. And uh, I remember I was, in a, I was in a chapel service about a month ago. And I walked out of the chapel and the Lord put that in my heart. He said, look up, look to the heavens. And I was reminded of that story of Abraham. He said he had to get Abram out of the tent and look at the heavens. See, it's so crazy. Like in, in life, it seems like we... Everything just goes so fast, like we're working and and we don't have time to think and to rest. That's not God, to not be able to rest. It is God ordained that we have quality rest. Not just physical rest, but spiritual rest, right? And he said, look up. And I remember just looking at the clouds, thanking God for everything that I have. And I received strength from God in that moment. I'll close with this. What you can see with your natural eyes is what you can grasp with your hands. But what you can see with the eyes of faith, you can grasp with your heart. You might not see a bright future with your physical eyes right now. But if you look with the eyes of faith, you put on those glasses, put on that lens, you'll be able to see a hope. You'll see a future. You'll see a word that is manifested a promise that comes true, a Savior that is good to keep His Word. So, one of the biggest dreams I have is to see revival in my lifetime. I dream of it. I, I, I desire for it. I don't see it with my eyes. My, my heart aches when I walk into Walmart or, a, or In-N-Out Burger and I see people that don't know Jesus. And you just know it. You just sense it in your spirit. It breaks my heart. And when, I, when someone actually does accept Jesus, I just receive so much joy. It, it's a joy that you can only, you can only go through experience. It's like, uh, and if you check this out when you have time. In First John it says, uh, it's, it's talking along the lines of John, this is the Apostle John, the one who, the beloved John, John the Revelator, who wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John. He walked with Jesus. He's the beloved disciple that laid his head on the chest of Jesus. He's the same John. He wrote the epistle of 1 John and he said, it is, we delivered this gospel to you so that we might have joy. Wait, well, the people that received the gospel, they would receive joy too, right? Well, yeah, but it's not just the receiver that gets joy when the gospel is proclaimed. It's the giver. Because the gospel is so, it's so rich, it's so full. There, there's, I'm, I know you've done this. When you tell someone about Jesus and they really get it, their, their eyes, their, it's, like their, it's like scales. Like when like, uh, Paul, he was originally saw when scales came off his eyes and he was able to see the truth. God can take anybody who's an enemy of him and an enemy of the cross, an enemy of Christ, 
And he can make that person the strongest advocator for Jesus ever. Did we not see that in the Apostle Paul? He said, I am of all sinners, I am chief. I, I, I hated the church. I, I breathed murderous threats against the church. I desired to kill every single one of them. And then, I, by his grace, I don't understand why he chose me. And it's because of, and that same man wrote, what is it, 13 epistles? And he spread the gospel to the Gentiles. That could be you. That could be me. That could be someone that you witness to tomorrow afternoon at lunch. That's right. In the marketplace. That could be Wednesday afternoon. That could be Friday morning. It is so crucial to be led by the Spirit and to constantly have your mind not set on earthly things, but above in heavenly places. Because remember, we're seated there in heavenly places. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? God, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for um, this amazing privilege to just uh, worship you tonight, Lord. God, in these last few moments, I pray that you would minister to your people. I pray that you would move in their hearts. You would glorify yourself, Lord God. Hallelujah. If there's anyone in here... um, I don't know if this is your first time coming to church or maybe you've been in church for many years, but uh, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ in your heart, I want to give you that opportunity because Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. And anyone in here that's received Jesus is the greatest thing. It is the most valuable treasure that you can ever possess. It will not go away. It will not fade away. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven many times when he was in parables um, where people would just, they would sell everything they had just to get this. It's so valuable. It's, it's more valuable than your house. It's more valuable than your car. It's more valuable than, um, than your degrees. Jesus, he's the one who gave you life. And so if you have never accepted Jesus Christ in your heart, I want you to be bold. I want you to be brave. I want you to slip your hand up right now, please.